This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. This is going to be a lengthy podcast, but a very important one, I think, and there are facts in it that I believe will amaze some people. Starting at sundown on Sunday and running until sundown on Monday, we'll be celebrating Tu Bishvat, the New Year for Trees. I'll come back to this very relevant observance at the end of the podcast. There's another observance on Monday, though, Martin Luther King Day, the day America celebrates the birthday of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The State of Israel celebrates Martin Luther King Day as well. But for some reason, Jews here in the United States have developed short memories lately. We buy into the view that Martin Luther King Day has nothing to do with us. And so, the topic for this week is why Martin Luther King Day has everything to do with us and why we should observe it. Anti-Semitism may never have been as bad here as it was in Europe, but it existed here. And not only does it still exist here, in the last five years it's been growing stronger once again just as it's been surging throughout Europe. Canada has seen the number of anti-Semitic incidents rise steadily in the last six years, and the problem was considered serious enough that the Canadian government hosted a national summit on anti-Semitism in July. From 1776 to this very day, the battle has raged here in the United States to make this a Christian nation and if possible, to make it a white Christian nation. In the Republic's earliest days, states adopted all kinds of laws to exclude non-Christians, not just non-whites. For example, in August 1809, a Jew, Jacob Henry by name, won a seat in the lower house of the North Carolina legislature, the North Carolina House of Commons, it was called. When he tried to take his seat on December 5th that year, a motion was introduced to deny it to him because he did not meet the religious test required by Article 32 of the North Carolina Constitution. Here's what Article 32 said, quote, No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority either of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state, shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state." Here's what Jacob Henry told the North Carolina House of Commons when the motion was debated the next day. Are you prepared to plunge at once from sublime heights of moral legislation into the dark and gloomy caverns of superstitious ignorance? Will you drive from your shores and from the shelter of your constitution all who do not lay their oblations on the same altar, observe the same ritual, and subscribe to the same dogmas? The religion I profess inculcates every duty which man owes to his fellow men. It enjoins upon its votaries the practice of every virtue, and the detestation of every vice. It teaches them to hope for the favor of heaven 
exactly in proportion as their lives have been directed by just, honorable, and beneficent maxims. This, then, gentlemen, is my creed. Unquote. After Henry spoke, the vote was taken, and the motion failed to pass. Jacob Henry was seated, but Article 32 went unchanged for another 60 years. Then there are the so-called blue laws, for which my county, Bergen County here in New Jersey, has the distinction of being the last great holdout in the nation. Blue laws prohibit shopping for anything but food, drugs, or other essentials on Sundays. Sixty years ago, the late Chief Justice Earl Warren defended this obnoxious category of legislation in a 1961 decision. Warren argued that such laws had as their stated goal, quote, the better observation and keeping holy the Lord's Day, commonly called Sunday, unquote. We see this today from the high court down and in red state legislature after red state legislature, where Christian values are promoted to the detriment of Jews and everyone else. As I said last week, abortion is a prime example. At least Two justices on the Supreme Court, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito, openly oppose abortion on Christian religious grounds, while ignoring our freedom of religion rights under the First Amendment to allow abortions, especially when a woman's physical or mental health is at issue. Then there's the Civil War. Some of the people doing the fighting in that war had no use for the Jews, and even acted on that. Consider the great Union hero, General William Tecumseh Sherman. His letters show a distrust for and even hatred for the Jews. Consider as well General Ulysses Simpson Grant. In November 1862, he went so far as to give the Jews, all the Jews, of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Mississippi, 24 hours to get out of the area or suffer the consequences. His order, General Order Number 11, is infamous. Fortunately, Abraham Lincoln didn't harbor such evil views. The president rescinded the order as soon as he heard about it. After the war, the folks in the South needed someone to blame for their defeat. Guess who were among those they chose? And they did so even though a Jew, Judah P. Benjamin, had been second in line to the presidency of the Confederacy. In the civilized East, where the plight of the slave so pained polite society, Jews couldn't be guests in certain hotels, couldn't belong to certain clubs, couldn't go to certain schools, couldn't hold certain jobs, couldn't eat in certain restaurants. As the years went by, the number of such places went up, not down. Today, we forget that in too many places in the South, and even in some places in the North, there were signs that read, quote, no Jews, blacks, or dogs allowed, unquote. Jews always came first in such hateful signs. We forget the time Sammy Davis Jr. was appearing at a Washington, D.C. nightclub and the American Nazi party leader George Lincoln Rockwell was parading outside with a black dog on a leash. The dog wore a sign, quote, I may be black, but at least I'm not Jewish, unquote. 
The Anti-Defamation League was founded in 1913 in part because a Jew in Atlanta in the Old South had been falsely convicted earlier that year of having raped and murdered a 13-year-old white girl, Mary Fagan. The evidence that convicted him was the testimony of a janitor who changed his story four times in four separate affidavits, and as we learned decades later, was the real culprit. Mobs of Atlantans surrounded the courthouse, screaming for Frank's conviction every day during the 25-day trial. They cheered the prosecutor each time he entered or left the courthouse, and there was a wild celebration in the streets when Leo Frank was found guilty. His conviction was followed two years later by a horrific act of Jew hatred when Leo Frank was lynched one night after his death sentence was commuted by a courageous governor, John Slayton. Slayton had reviewed 10,000 pages of documents. Then he personally visited the scene of the crime. And it all led him to conclude that Leo Frank was innocent. Slayton would have preferred to free Leo Frank, but he knew that was dangerous for several reasons. Instead, he commuted Frank's sentence to life in prison so that Frank's attorneys would have more time to conclude their appeals and finally prove his innocence once and for all. The lynching the next night put an end to that effort. Now consider who it was who did the lynching. The lynching party included an ex-governor of Georgia, a superior court judge, several Georgia mayors, and the son of a U.S. senator, and they were publicly encouraged to carry out that atrocity by a one-time vice presidential candidate who would soon become a U.S. senator himself. No one was ever charged for that crime. As for Slayton, when his term as governor ended just a few days later, he and his family had to be escorted out of the state by units of the Georgia National Guard. So angry were the people of Atlanta. Slayton didn't set foot in Georgia again for over a decade. Leo Franks and Governor Slayton's story was immortalized in a two-part TV film, The Murder of Mary Fagan. Fagan is spelled P-H-A-G-A-N. The Murder of Mary Fagan, starring Jack Lemmon as the governor. A two-hour edited version is available on Amazon Prime. Either version is well worth watching. Some of you at least may have heard of Leo Frank or seen the movie, either version. But I'm virtually certain that no one has ever heard of Esther Brown. That's a pity because of the role she played in ending so-called separate but equal education in America. We all know that the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Oliver Brown et al. v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, effectively ended segregation in America. Oliver Brown was a black man, one of 33 plaintiffs in that historic case. His name is associated with the decision only because his name was the first one on the list. It was an accident of the alphabet, but it was a fortuitous accident because it was Esther Brown who started that ball rolling six years earlier in 1948. Esther Brown wasn't black. She was Jewish. 
If not for her, there probably would never have been a Brown v. Board of Education lawsuit. Segregation would have ended, but in some other way. In 1948, Esther Brown was an affluent 30-year-old Jewish housewife living in a Kansas City suburb called Merriam. She had a black maid who had a child enrolled in an all-black two-room schoolhouse built in 1888, known as the Walker School. The school only had two teachers for all eight grades, so the older students had to fill in to teach the younger ones. The Walker School also had no principal. Conditions in the school were beyond disgusting. Not only were the bulbs turned out, there were no bathrooms. The children had to use an outhouse that was located in a dirt playground that itself was strewn with broken equipment parts. There also were no meals for the children. They had to walk home for lunch. And then they had to rush back to school. One day, Esther's maid mentioned how upset she was by conditions at the Walker School and a poor education her child was getting. Esther Brown was shocked by what she heard, and she immediately determined to correct it. The first thing she did was to take her case to the school board, the all-white school board. She just knew that when they heard about the conditions in the Walker School, they would act. After all, they were building a brand new all-white school because the old one needed to be replaced, so they surely would do the right thing in this case as well. Besides, she felt, the children from the Walker School should be allowed to attend that new school too. That would be the best solution. The board heard Esther out, and it did in fact act. It ordered new light bulbs to be installed in the Walker School. Esther Brown later said she left the meeting feeling, quote, nauseated, unquote. But she also left more than ever determined to keep fighting. She began organizing meetings of black parents, and she even tried to convince white parents to join her cause, all to no avail. So, Esther went to the Kansas City chapter of the NAACP, an organization founded in large part by Jews, as you'll hear later, and asked the NAACP to file suit against the Merriam School Board. Then she hit the road to raise the money needed to pay for that lawsuit. She made appeals at any venue she thought would be responsive, including an appeal she made at a Billie Holiday concert. She also helped organize a boycott of the Walker School and set up a new private school to educate the students instead. For her efforts, Esther Brown's life was threatened, a cross was burned in her front yard, and her husband was fired from his job. That only made her even more determined. The first victory came in 1949, when the Kansas Supreme Court, in a case known as Webb v. School District No. 90, ordered the Merriam School Board to admit the Walker students into the brand new and, until then, all-white public school. That was a local victory, but Esther was now determined to end segregated schools, period. Her next move was to join the NAACP's effort to end segregation in the Topeka school system, the effort that ended in Brown v. Board of Education. Her involvement in that effort was pivotal, according to Lucinda Todd, who was 
secretary of the Topeka NAACP branch at the time. Said Ms. Todd, quote, I don't know if we could have done it without her, unquote. We may not know Esther Brown's role in bringing an end to segregated schools, but they do remember it in Merriam, Kansas, where it all began for her. In 1975, five years after her death, the city of Merriam dedicated a new three-and-a-half-acre public park in her honor, a park that was placed across Booker Street from where the Walker School had once stood. That was a digression. Let's return to anti-Semitism in America. This bizarre Jew hatred that was so evident in the 19th century was carried to an extreme during the mid-20th century in the Holocaust, as I've mentioned in some recent podcasts. The State Department was long a hotbed for anti-Semitism. It suited folks there, apparently, to see the Jews burn in Hitler's ovens rather than let them set foot on our shores. So they came up with an ingenious plan to help keep the Jews trapped in Europe. In 1882, Congress passed a law that prohibited anyone who was likely to become a public charge, in other words, someone who didn't have a job, from emigrating to the United States. Then, in 1885, Congress passed the Alien Contract Labor Law. It prohibited the immigration of anyone who did have a job waiting for them. There were a few exceptions, such as foreigners who were brought in to do domestic service, skilled workers who were needed to help establish a new trade or industry, professional artists, lecturers, and actors. Because both laws were still on the books in the 1930s and 1940s, the State Department ordered its embassies in Europe to use the appropriate one to keep the Jews of Europe in Europe. If a Jew had a job, he or she couldn't emigrate to the United States under the 1885 law. If he or she didn't have a job, that person was to be barred under the 1882 law. This was only one of the tactics used. Eventually, they all found their way into one of the most damning reports a president ever saw across his desk. The 18-page report, as I've mentioned in recent podcasts, was prepared at the request of Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau and was titled, quote, The Acquiescence of This Government in the Murder of the Jews, unquote. The United States, Morgenthau's report charged, was complicit in the Nazi campaign to eradicate the Jews of Europe. Hatred of the Jew and hatred of the black have gone hand in hand in this country for a very long time. Even today, white, this is used by the haters, defines the white Christian. In that sense, then, the Jew is no more white than someone who is black or brown or yellow. Is it any wonder, then, that blacks and Jews have found common cause in the battle for civil rights? Martin Luther King understood all that. He was not a Jew hater. He was a friend to the Jews. After his death, Coretta Scott King asked a rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, to speak at Dr. King's funeral. The two clergymen were close friends. In 1963, for example, Dr. King helped set up a conference on Soviet Jews that Heschel attended. 
And in 1967, the two men co-authored a formal protest published in the New York Times, decrying Egypt's blockade in the Straits of Tehran, which cut Israel off from access to shipping in the Gulf of Aqaba. That blockade led to the Six-Day War in June 1967. Dr. King once said, quote, My people were brought to America in chains. Your people were driven here to escape the chains fashioned for them in Europe. Our unity is born of our common struggle for centuries, not only to rid ourselves of bondage, but to make oppression of any people by others an impossibility, unquote. In May 1958, he spoke at an American Jewish Congress convention. Said Dr. King, quote, There are Hitlers loose in America today, both in high and low places. As the tensions and bewilderment of economic problems become more severe, history's scapegoats, the Jews, will be joined by new scapegoats, the Negroes. The Hitlers will seek to divert people's minds and turn their frustration and anger to the helpless, to the outnumbered. Then, whether the Negro and Jew shall live in peace will depend on how firmly they resist, how effectively they reach the minds of the decent Americans to halt this deadly diversion, unquote. Less than two weeks before his murder on April 4, 1968, King had this to say to the attendees at the 68th Rabbinical Assembly Convention, quote, probably more than any other ethnic group, the Jewish community has been sympathetic and has stood as an ally to the Negro in his struggle for justice, unquote. Dr. King was also a friend to the Jewish state. That's why the State of Israel annually marks Martin Luther King Day as well. That's also why there is a Martin Luther King forest in Israel and a Martin Luther King street in Jerusalem, Israel's capital city. In a letter he wrote in September 1967, three months after the Six-Day War, Dr. King made it, quote, crystal clear, unquote, that he rejected efforts by black groups to condemn Israel and to support Arab calls for its demise. Said he, quote, Israel's right to exist as a state is incontestable, unquote. In that 1968 speech to the Rabbinical Assembly that I just mentioned, Dr. King also said this, quote, Peace for Israel means security, and we must stand with all our might to protect its right to exist, its territorial integrity. I see Israel as one of the great outposts of democracy in the world, and a marvelous example of what can be done how desert land can be transformed into an oasis of brotherhood and democracy. Peace for Israel means security, and that security must be a reality, unquote. Martin Luther King deserved our respect while he lived, and his memory deserves to be honored by us now. The black-Jewish relationship is somewhat strained today, that's true. But the relationship is still strong on very many levels. We still have a common cause, and we still face a common enemy. That enemy has been very busy trying to divide blacks and Jews. We see it almost every day on social media. White supremacists disguise themselves on social media as Jews making racist comments about blacks 
and disguise themselves as blacks, making racist comments about Jews. As Agudath Israel's Avi Shafran wrote recently, such postings are, as he termed them, social media incendiary devices that, he said, are the work of white supremacists seeking to turn blacks and Jews against each other. We can't allow ourselves to forget that. We dare not forget that. And we dare not give in to that. And one positive thing we can do in this regard comes this Monday. Take a few moments with your family and friends, your children especially, and remember Dr. King and discuss his legacy. Then take a few more moments to discuss how, and especially why, Jews were not only a part of the civil rights movement, but were among its founders. Jews and blacks both tend to forget that we once marched side by side in that struggle for equality. Not just because it was the correct course to take, a good enough reason by itself, but because we were among those most discriminated against. The janitor whose testimony led to Leo Frank's conviction in 1913 was black, and he would never have been allowed to testify against a white man in any southern courtroom in Atlanta or anywhere else in the Old South. Leo Frank wasn't white. He was a Jew. So a southern prosecutor, a southern judge, and a southern jury ignored the color of the janitor's skin. Convicting a Jew outweighed any Jim Crow considerations. The NAACP, the leading civil rights organization in this country, was founded in 1911, and as I noted earlier, it was founded in significant part by Jews, who also helped fund it. Among them were Sears President Julius Rosenwald, the social and political activist and communal leader Henry Moskowitz, Henry Street Settlement founder Lillian Wald, and two reform rabbis, Emil Hirsch and Stephen Wise. In 1914, the NAACP elected a Jew to be its chairman, Columbia University professor emeritus Joel Spingarn. He brought other Jews onto the NAACP board, including the banker and philanthropist Jacob Schiff. During the 1960s, nearly half the country's civil rights leaders were Jewish. More than half the white civil rights workers were Jewish. And of course, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, two of the three people killed in Mississippi during 1964's Freedom Summer, were Jewish. The third, James Cheney, was black. The civil rights movement worked for us a lot quicker than it did for blacks. Not because the white world liked Jews better than they liked black people. White supremacists still don't include Jews in their definition of white. But because most of us could pass for white. Reflect on that on Monday as well. And while you're at it, reflect as well on Tubishvat, the New Year for Trees. If you haven't read my column on the urgent relevance of Tubishvat, that appeared in last week's Jewish Standard. You can find it on the columns page of my website. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. 
on Monday, remember Dr. Martin Luther King and also hug a tree and wish it a happy new year. And above all, stay safe.